Hello and welcome. You're listening to Brain Dump. This is a podcast where we talk about life from the meaningful to the extreme. Right, so today on the show I've brought my mum on and the reason I brought my mum on is partly mum wanted to be on the show but also because my mum has the unique perspective of being a cancer survivor. Um, so without further ado, mum, thank you for coming on the show. Hello, thank you Connor, thank you for inviting me. Um, so to give a bit of background, um, why did you want to first come on the show about talking about your experiences with cancer? Um, I think with all the research and all the amazing um, medical uh, discoveries that we have made, cancer is still extremely prevalent in lots of people's lives. Um, recently, um, I have known a number of people who've got cancer, but also that it are terminal and they're not coming back. And all of them are young people. Mm. Um, I've also known some people who have been young, extremely healthy in their lives, and they've had horrific, horrific cancer situations. So I just wanted to be able to share my experiences and then maybe, you know, help anybody else either going through it or prevent it or um, just share awareness, really. So to give us some backstory, um, when did you first suspect you had cancer? In reality, I don't think I ever suspected um, I had cancer. I'd had a lump um, two, three years um, uh, investigated. I had a biopsy and it came back um, benign. Um, and I'll be honest, I was lulled into a false sense of security. I thought, well, there's no cancer in my family, so I'm absolutely fine. So when I thought, mm, this lump is changing, I thought, okay, well, you know, uh, sense prevails and I'll go and get it checked out but I wasn't there was no urgency about it because I thought well I'm fine it's you know it's benign um I even delayed an appointment to go and get it looked at um and the the hospital chased me up saying you know you really need to um fix a date for your appointment um so I did and um I couldn't believe when um I was told it was breast cancer and when when was this? Well, it was um I'd had the lump for as I say, I think it was 2003 when I had my first biopsy. Okay. And then um I initiated um a doctor's appointment in 2009, but it wasn't until 2010, January 2010 that I was actually diagnosed with breast cancer. Really? So quite a long time. It was then. a very long time. Yeah. And all that time, it had actually been evolving. Oh, really? Quite so you were getting a lot more aggressive? Ever. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't, I mean, clearly it wasn't an aggressive form of cancer, but originally I'd had one lump. By the time I'd had my biopsy and scans and everything, they'd found three lumps. Um, so in that period of time, it had gone from benign, uh, one benign um lump to three malignant ones all right and how does the process of getting diagnosed work how how did you go about doing that i think it's very different for everybody i think um for me i just went to my gp 
she said at the time, oh, it's probably nothing, but just to be, you know, sure and, and safe, we'll get you checked out at the hospital and do a biopsy. Um, and as I say, you know, that consultation was in December. The first letter came in the January. I put it off. And so a few weeks later, I got chased up. So by the February, we had um, an action plan in place to deal with the cancer. And how did it make you feel when you got told the news? Um, I was really angry. Oh, really? I was very angry. My first reaction was, this is ridiculous. This cannot be happening to me. Mm. I'm a single mum. I've just started to, you know, I was still in the, mo- in the motions of, you know, getting divorced. Yeah. Um, which was stressful in itself. And being a single mum was obviously, you know, a bit of a challenge. I was working full time, um, loving my job. So it was all, it was just like, I really don't need this now. This is just not fair. We've been through enough. So anger was was the predominant uh, feeling. It's interesting because a lot of people would have thought it would be sadness or, you know, denial or something like that. But for you, quite a fierce character. Anger is definitely the prevailing emotion. Yeah, definitely, without a doubt. I think mostly I felt sorry for you and your sister because I felt, well, you know, they've been through enough. Why do we have to go through something else again? Um, This is our opportunity to um, recover. Yeah. But it was just just another challenge. Yeah, as as the way is with the Bannister family, always uh, getting one onslaught after the next. Um, So what did you do after you were told? Um, my initial reaction was, okay, well, we have to have an action plan. Um, whatever I did was always to try and protect you and your sister. Um, so I think really it, for me, it was trying to be organized, trying to identify what comes first. How do we do this? Um, you know, because of course it it does affect your life, no matter how organized or sensible or strong you are it it is an interference uh were the nhs or whoever your medical team was did they really support you with you know establishing this action plan no in fairness um the medical care was amazing it was really really good but i don't remember ever being offered any kind of uh counseling um, I did get a lot of emotional support from my breast cancer nurse, Jane Boubier, Taunton Musgrove. Um, she was amazing, really, really amazing, as was my surgeon, Jasper Gill. But I think it fell down a little bit on the oncology side of things. Um, they just opened a new um, uh, cancer uh, wing at the Beacon Centre in Musgrove, and I think there were a few teething problems, so a few things slipped through the net, and one of them for me was being offered um, emotional and, um, uh, you know, mental health support, really. Yeah, and I can imagine that being, like, one of the, probably the, the almost the most challenging part, would you say? Yeah, it was, but I think also you don't realise it, because I think um, you suddenly get thrown into this situation so I don't think um, you think about all the 
parameters um, and the repercussions of what you're going through because you, you literally just deal with it. So yeah. the psychological side of things, I didn't take into much of account until pretty much when it was over. Yeah, because I remember, because um, you've always been a very active, very strong woman in my life. And it was so difficult to see you so fragile and like really struggling with the fact that you weren't as physically capable as you were. And I think from my perspective, that really knocked your confidence. And as a result, you got very angry and frustrated at the fact that you couldn't do a lot of the things you could do before. I think so, which is one of the reasons why I try to do as much as I normally had done, including my running. Yeah, yeah. Did you, when you knew that you were, you know, diagnosed, did you prepare in any way? Um, I did quite a bit of research and the one thing that I was really anti was having chemotherapy because for me it is just, you know, literally poisoning your body with lots of chemicals, which is really alien to me. Um, and whilst my, you know, eating habits and diet was far from perfect, um, I'd kept a relatively healthy lifestyle and I did run, you know, five, 10 K three, sometimes four times a week. So for me, I kept asking the question, will I still be able to run? So for quite a long time, up until, um, probably the end of the chemotherapy, I was still running, even after I had um, a mastectomy. Do you think that played a significant role in your recovery? Um, physically, no, I don't think it did. I think it was the fact that mentally I wanted to know that I could carry on as I had done before. And I think one of the things was that I was always told that after certain surgeries, I wouldn't be able to um, uh, do certain things. And I was just like, Nope, I'm adamant that that's not going to happen. Yeah, and I think that's just a testament to your strength of character. Um, so how long did the whole process last for? Um, so initially I was diagnosed, and then the first thing they do that they did they wanted was um, to do have an action plan. So they basically said that um, after the biopsy, uh, they wanted to um, do a mastectomy. Um, and they also wanted to um, check my lymph nodes. So I can't, I'll be, I'll be honest, I can't remember which was first, but I think they basically looked at um, how many uh, lymph nodes, if any, were affected, and they were going to remove those as well. I had 16 lymph nodes and only one was affected, so then they decided to take them all out as, again, another precautionary measure. So I think... Um, First of all was the mastectomy. That was the most important thing because obviously that's the first thing you do is, is, is get rid of the cancer. Um, and then they uh, did the biopsy to identify if my lymph nodes were infected and one of them was. So then they did, um, it's something called a, a lymph node clearance, something like that. And um, then after that it was uh, chemotherapy. and then. Um, ultimately radiotherapy so that started the process started in the my mastectomy was in the march and the final um bit of uh 
chemotherapy was in the September and then I had the radiotherapy in the November. But it's amazing how I it's like a short, sharp and intense year, but it drags on for like forever. I remember you were still having tests like years later and it was still very much mentally scarring from then on, particularly as we acquire fragile family having gone through so much already and do you think that there were any like long-term effects yeah I definitely think there were and I also again I didn't realize quite the impact because I say you're you put so much energy into dealing with the situation at the time you don't um, fully appreciate the repercussions I didn't I mean, I did identify some vulnerabilities with India at the time because she was very insecure. She was 12 at the time and um, she was very, well, she wasn't 12, she was a bit younger, um, that she was very vulnerable. So I I'd sort of identified that. But what I really, truly hadn't uh, embraced was the fact that, you know, I might be uh, emotionally scarred. One of the things, as I say, that was really important for me was to get back to full-time work I'd just been uh, offered a full-time job with a company a week within working with a company who incidentally I was replacing because they got breast cancer um, I uh, decided well I can't do a full-time job so I did part-time and anyway I, I digress but um, basically I wanted to get back to full-time work immediately after all the treatment and that actually turned out to be um, a pretty uh, silly um, decision because emotionally and physically I wasn't as strong as I should have been because I didn't allow myself I literally I sort of finished I think the radiotherapy um, at the end of November and I went straight back to work two three weeks time later. Yeah and I think I think people obviously cope with trauma in a number of different ways and I think you're a lot like me is just to plow on distraction just to keep going is our best form of of coping with such difficulty but often that means that you don't really accept it and it, it's still going on and it has such a deeper profound impact on you later on because you suddenly it's suddenly you come crashing and burning down because it all piles on top of you yeah, no, I agree. And, and um, one of the, the biggest effects for me wasn't um, losing a breast because, to be honest, actually, that was probably the most minor part of it. I, I didn't particularly like my boobs anyway. Um, but losing my hair really was, that really knocked my confidence. Um, I had no eyebrows and my eyelashes literally um, fell out at the end of the cycle. When my hair started to grow back, ironically, but um, that for me, because that it was a physical statement, people could see that there was something wrong, and um, I, I don't think I'm a particularly vain person, but I think you you do lose your femininity, and I think um, in my job I was you know dealing with a lot of the public, and I just felt vulnerable, really vulnerable, looking odd. I mean, I personally, I remember that definitely being one of the hardest, hardest parts of the whole thing. I remember um, you picking me up from school once and you were wearing a wig and you wanted to see if I 
could tell the difference, but I didn't know how to react because I didn't know whether if I acknowledged the fact you're wearing a wig was great because I could tell there was a difference or the fact that it would hurt your confidence because you couldn't hide from the fact. And uh, I can't, I think I just said, oh, nice wig or something like that. But yeah, that was those, that was definitely really difficult for all of us, I think. I even think like our dog Monty is literally emotionally scarred. He's very fragile and he does, you know, he cares a lot. And it's funny how in the scope of family, if a dog can pick up on the emotional stress that's going on, how that impacts everyone involved, not, you know, and I think that's why I have a lot of respect for you because you still carried on, you still didn't sacrifice who you were as a person despite your you know circumstances well I think you know as a single mum and as I say my priority was uh, you and your sister um it it was for me just to try and keep us above water and a lot of the times I didn't do a great job because you know I was suffering myself um and angry anger was definitely as I say you know uh, a dominant feature of the whole process. Also, the thing that I haven't mentioned is that we didn't have a huge um, family or emotional support. So it was largely just the three of us going through it. I just met my husband, Tim, but we'd literally known each other weeks. Um, and it was quite, you know, um, to be honest, he, Tim was um, probably the, the biggest and most uh, amazing distraction for me because I was falling in love and all this chaos um he was there and but it was you know it was a roller coaster of emotions and I think partly my anger derived from the fact that you know I didn't have a huge network of people thronging around me bringing me lasagnas um so um I thought well you know you just you you've got to get on with it sink or swim yeah I think um Tim was a underlying pillar of strength in our in our little family, particularly towards the end when um he was a bit more getting involved kind of thing. Um and I always think it's just incredible that he he stepped in despite what was everything was going on and you know, stepping up to the plate that another man left behind is is truly, you know, commendable for sure. Yeah. Saint Timothy, I call him. <laughs> very aptly named um so what did you learn about yourself through this process um i learned that i was strong but i also learned that um sometimes being trying to be strong all the time is a weakness and it took me a very long time to learn that because after all the treatment for a couple of years afterwards, my immunity was quite vulnerable. And I'd never been really ill. Um, I've got the, the tail end of laryngitis now, but those sorts of things I never used to get. And I think that was a lot to do with the, the uh, chemotherapy um, uh, exiting my body. Um, but I tried to push through. But sometimes really what I should have just done was lie on the sofa with a good book and some music and fall asleep. But I always felt that I needed to push through it. 
Um, and I think emotionally, um, I, you know, I did after, after a while have um, quite a lot of uh, mental health issues, which again, should have been addressed. So I think if you can, if there are resources out there to support you for your mental health and um, just, you know, simple support, action plan, you know, who's going to do the shopping today, who can pick the children up, that sort of thing, to have something there for you, which I didn't have. Um, so as I say, I think not necessarily trying to be uh, a conqueror and that sometimes you just have to um, accept the vulnerabilities and allow yourself to recover because by trying to push through it had longer term effects I should have took me a long time to uh, get back on an even keel emotionally I also think that there isn't enough for people who are surrounded by it like I mean I was quite young at the time but I still had no idea what I could do to help in any way. And I remember putting on a really brave face. I remember going to school every day, acting like there was nothing going wrong. But I remember my uh, boarding housemaster just saw through right through the bullshit and was just like, what the hell's up, Connor? But I just carried on. I just, you know... um, and we're we're pretty well. We're a very resilient family, but I think uh, as a result, that also has stabbed us in the back a bit. I remember um, I was always known as the the like this guy who didn't really show much emotion. And I remember walking back from uh, playing hockey, um, and so everyone walks back to their boarding house and just dwelling on it. Just, you know, and I, there's sort of a group of boys and I was sort of off to the side and um, I just broke down randomly crying, but I still sort of kept the same stride. And they're like, oh, my God, Connie, you're right. And I went, yeah, I'm fine. And then carried on, just ran off. And I remember thinking how shocked they were. And I was like, it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't. Everyone should be a lot more open about how they feel and, you know, I kind of looking back on it, I feel a bit bad for them because they were taken so surprised, and that shouldn't be how it is. But yeah, I think as a whole, we're all like that. I think. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, that's. I think we we as a family have helped. I mean, after a very short period of time, India became anorexic, um, and I think that that is those these were the cracks that started to appear because we tried to hold it together. Um, and we'd, we'd done a good job, but um, what we needed was a much bigger support network. And the biggest thing that I think out of all this, as with any mental health issue, um, it's okay to be weak. It's okay to cry. It's okay to admit that you're not coping because that in itself is the first step to getting help and support, which we didn't know any different. We just carried on the way that we had done. But I think there's a lot better support out there now, I hope anyway, um, for people in these situations. No, definitely. I think, um, again, going back to the fact that we're quite a, an isolated family, there was basically the three of us and obviously Tim was uh, on the periphery. But being just the three of us, we heavily relied on just the three of us. And 
me and Inji having different age gaps and not really seeing each other very much at school and that. And so you become very, very self-reliant. And I think being human, that's just not, that's not a way of coping with anything. Like it is so important to turn to people in times of need. And we didn't and we carried on and you, you know, we're trying to raise two children, deal with cancer, you know, um, and just getting over a divorce. And yet we didn't have anyone else to turn to. And I almost think the long term consequences were actually far worse than I mean, not I wouldn't say far worse because I say the cancer was brutal, vicious, but the long term effects, you can only stay strong for so long. And I think we all started throwing at the seams quite a lot. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we are on the road to, to recovery now as, as a family. We'll always have scars, but, you know, mental and physical. Um, but I think I would say to anybody out there, just, you know, if you are feeling vulnerable, talk to somebody, find, reach out to somebody. There are resources available. There are much better resources available now um, to, to ask for help, put your hand up, you know. Because as you say, the, the long-term effects can be worse than the you know, actual cancer itself. Yeah, no, and I think um, that's so important to, to just highlight the fact that it's a horrible, terrible disease, but it's almost how you deal with it that's so much worse. I think if you don't tackle it the correct way, you can prolong your suffering a lot, lot more. Yeah, definitely, because as, as I say, I tried to charge through so that the, the mental scars, but also the fact that I felt I should carry on and get back to normal as soon as I possibly could. But pushing through, because the chemotherapy really takes it out of you. And I was, as I say, pretty fit person. Um, you just have to accept that, you know, um, you've ingested these chemicals. It's going to have an effect on you physically. So just, you know, recovery is part of recovery is relaxing and 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 healing in a proper fashion not rushing through it so how what does chemotherapy do to you like we all hear about it we all know that that's the uh, number one treatment for cancer but having never experienced it what does it entail well i think the first thing i would say is everybody's different and the one thing that um i was quite conscious of not doing was listening to lots of other people and what their ailments were and how they, you know, dealt with it because everybody's different. Um, and the nurses actually, uh, the hospital said, don't go on the internet because, it, you know, it's, it's all this scaremongering. I'd been told, you know, my nails would all go black and fall off and all sorts of things. So I thought, right, okay, I'm, I'm just going to deal with it in my own process. Um, the first round of chemotherapy was, um, it's like, for me, it was like um, having a massive hangover. And um, basically, I just felt really, really sick. And I drove myself home after the first chemotherapy session, which I wouldn't recommend to anybody. Um, and progressively i had six six sessions over a period of about two and a half three months 
progressively it starts to knock your immunity, but physically, I mean, it's literally killing your cells. So um, you, whatever food, nutrition, you just go with the flow. If the only thing you can eat is cheese sandwiches, go with it and porridge because there were so many things that I couldn't eat. Not, not because I, I just felt that the, the, the effect on my mouth, I actually had quite a sore mouth. So the, the physical process of eating food was difficult. Um, so towards the end of the chemotherapy, I, there was, I had so little energy. I remember having a bath once and finding it difficult to walk from the bathroom to the bedroom, which for me was so alien because I've been running, you know, 10K two or three times a week. Um, so again, I feel that, you know, you should just um, accept it and rest as much as you possibly can. Um, but don't listen to other people. Do your thing. And if you want to eat ice cream all the time, just eat ice cream. Because I know that everybody says, oh, do lots of um, herbal treatments. Um, but you don't know how you're going to feel at that time. Just do what feels best for you. Yeah. And how did your, did you tell your friends? How did you rate that to them? And were they helpful or how did, how did it go down? Um, I think I told one or two friends at the school. I think um, I was partly embarrassed because I don't like attention and the limelight. And immediately it went through all the mothers at school and everything. Oh, my God, she's got cancer. She's got cancer. And people used to come up to me in the playground, people I hardly ever knew. And I didn't want that attention. I just wanted to get on with it. I just wanted to have as much normality as possible. So um, I think some people fussed in the wrong way. I also think that um, it's very difficult trying to help somebody with cancer because unless you've been there yourself, you don't know how to react. I think just say to somebody, you know, I'm there for you if you need me. Um, but don't, I don't know, it's, it's a very fine line. Don't mollycoddle. It's a bit like bereavement, really. You don't know what to say. And I think a lot of people didn't know what to say. So. I try to brush it aside, unfortunately. As as we always do in the Balancer family. <laughs> no, um, I remember the same same thing. Like, I didn't really want to tell anyone, um, but I told a couple of close friends, and I basically said, "Don't don't tell anyone." Like, I don't, and literally spread like fire across the school. And I remember, um, like hating that like i remember random people like running across the sports field to give me a massive hug who i barely knew and i felt suddenly really kind of used i was like do you just want to be get some attention off the boy whose mum's got cancer you know it felt really really horrible where one of my best mates cam was like just such a nice he was so supportive about it he was just like it's fucking shit and then but you'll get through it, like, you know, he was just, he didn't make a fuss of it, he didn't, he was he was just empathised, but also at the point, knew that the best way to support me was just to be there with me, like, rather than try and, you know, you know, make a big deal out of it, 
um well i remember other people i told them and they started crying and i was like i'm not even crying like <laughs> this is my life gonna deal with but yeah i think i mean we are unique in that situation that we are quite quite hard but I, as i say i don't think that's necessarily i think perhaps maybe if we'd embraced some of the support that we were offered um but we weren't used to that so i think we automatically rejected it a little bit but you know it's a learning curve isn't it i mean if we were ever to go through that situation again and the one thing that it has done for me is is that if i know anybody who's now in the situation that i was in i know how to deal with it and i think um one or two people um one particular friend of mine she um lived a really healthy life she got liver lung and um bowel cancer um and went through a grueling grueling time and i knew that the only thing that i could do for her was talk to her and listen um because sometimes people just want to rant and rave and you know have a cup of tea i think i think a lot of people just need validation you need to just hear them out hear the fact that they are going through hell and that's okay that's literally that's all you know that's fine i think afterwards it particularly brought us as a three very very close together i think where people are very surprised about how open we are to each other and i think for me anyway i think well when you go through something like you know a member of a family having cancer you you do just realize that life is so fragile and so you might as well just accept every part of each other and just share things and share insecurities and you learn to grow as a person because you appreciate those around you and I think I've definitely become a lot more open also since you know the depression I've been going through post cancer and anorexia and divorce and all of that because I tried to be a rock and failed because <laughs> you can't do it alone and these life lessons that make you a better person and I think when you go through trauma and you lean on each other you do learn so much about what it means to be human yeah definitely I, I completely agree with you I mean I think I'm not a religious person but I think that um all these challenges um have allowed us to grow um we are much I mean we were strong before but we are now really so strong as a consequence of all these things that we've gone through and we are part you know part of doing this podcast today is somehow I hope that somebody will benefit to the positive by these discussions um and um you know benefit from um our experiences and perhaps be better furnished um if they ever go through something like this or be able to support somebody they know that's going through this yeah definitely I think um it's just incredible how when you go through something that almost the only thing you want to do is help other people is because you know how awful it can be and you just want to you know share that empathy and that strength that you've gained with other people because it's that's what it means to be you know that's how how I feel anyway that's just how it is you know no I completely agree I think sometimes I always say to India that um, I think we 
tread the path for other people sometimes, um, you know, to forge the way and say, well, this is how it happened for us. You know, it's a bit like Indiana Jones leading a trail, going yeah. over a rocky bridge and we'll say, don't take that port, yeah, go yeah. this way. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree. Well, looking at the three of us particularly, we uh, dealt with things very differently. Like, I, I always describe it as reflectors and absorbers. And I've told this theory to Gina, my girlfriend, and India, obviously my sister. Um, and I think India was very much an absorber and you and me were both reflectors where we dealt with shit and we just explode. Just like tell everyone to fuck off and we're just going to do it ourselves and just, you know, you know, put on this hard outer shell where you reflect any shit, you know, away from yourself. Where I think India took a lot of it on board and it, it, she really absorbed all of this and it definitely shook her and rocked her a lot more. No, no less strong. Like she still carried on with life, carried on dealing with everything, but it. She definitely was. It you know, internalized. Hundred percent. Well, I think we internalized it all as well, but we just had such a polar way of dealing with it. And I think a lot of the time, we didn't help each other because these two, you know, personality types clashed quite considerably. And I think a lot of the time, Indy took the brunt of it. I think I think that's that's very true, but I think as with all these things, um, you you're going through the process. You're actually going through it. So at the time, you know, it's like my analogy would be: say your house is on fire, your um, your um, drive is to get through that fire and out intact. You don't think about oh god, my photo album or whatever. You just want to get out alive. And I think that's where your energies go. So afterwards, then you do the post-mortem of the situation and think, well, actually, we could have got out of that house much quicker if we just opened the back door. Um, But it's easy to see that in hindsight. Yeah, I really like that analogy, actually. Cancer is a truly awful disease, but there is the opportunity for strength from it. I think we've definitely transformed as individuals since. Um, for the better, definitely. Yeah, I agree 100%. And the thing that we must all remember is that, you know, I survived. We all survived. You know, as I say, we've got our scars, um, but I'm alive. And, you know, how long that will last, I don't know. But um, it's, I actually think now, actually, it was... Sounds a really strange thing to say, an amazing experience because I think it gave me so many more uh, skills to deal with life in general. Yeah, I agree. I mean, not that it was an amazing experience. If someone told me to relive it, I'd say, fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) But um, definitely, definitely the person I am now, I definitely you know, appreciate it. I wouldn't say, you know, it was an amazing experience. Okay, definitely... that's perhaps the wrong word. But, um... <laughs> no, yeah, definitely. But I think um, it was an important life lesson for sure. Um, so what advice would you give to someone who's found out a family member has cancer or someone who's actually going through it themselves? I think for the person that's going through it themselves is, is firstly take... Um, a deep breath and a step back 
um, their circumstances will be very different to ours and how they want to go forward will be very different from ours. Um, but I think they need to identify for themselves how they want to deal with it. They will be in shock, probably, um, as, I, as I was. Um, but first and foremost, I think they should try, if they can, to get some sort of support, even if it's just one person that they know that they can talk to or lean on, because it is a battle and it's going to get bloody and messy at times. So at some stage, you're going to need to be able to pass the baton on to somebody and you shouldn't feel in any shape or form weak or vulnerable for doing that. It's just reality, you know. If um, you're going to be vulnerable, it's nice to have some sort of support there. For the, that's for the, the advice I would suggest for um, any individual who's going through it. I sometimes think, actually, it's worse for the people who are not going through it, the people who are the closest to you, because especially if you've got um, vulnerable dependents, children um, won't really appreciate um, the intricacies of, you know, all the medical side of things. But just be honest and say, hey, guys, you know, I can't walk the dogs today. Um, and then, you know, just be there. Just talk to each other. Um, ask that person, do you want help? Do you want me to give you? What do you want? Ask them. Because everybody's going to be different. And what is one man's meat is another man's poison. So, you know, um, I think for me, it would have been just great to have had somebody to talk to. Um, I didn't necessarily need somebody to pick the children up from school or make lasagna, but um, it would have nice to have had a bit of emotional support sometimes. Yeah, well, I think that will do for this episode. But thank you so much, Mum. You're still and will always be one of my role models in life. And I love you very much. But thank you very much for coming on Brain Dump. Well, it's been a pleasure. I hope other people will somehow take some benefit from this. and. Um, Thank you, Connor, for being my rock and my role model and my hero. I love you too.